Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. So this is pretty funny. You know, if you think that you and I would have first have met in Notting Hill Gate, where you had better badges, back in very early 1979, we're now sitting outside in the Catskill Mountains because we both lived in America for a long time and stayed in touch. And I'm catching you right now as you're flicking through this uh, Best of Jamming book. It's the Jamming Fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? And looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite, quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and... And that was, that is a fanzine, right? Episode 3, Image as Virus. Tony Fletcher here, and welcome to Episode 3 of the Jamming Fanzine Podcast. We started this show to coincide with the new book, The Best of Jamming, Selections and Stories from the Fanzine that Grew Up, 1977 to 86, published by Omnibus Press and available pretty much everywhere at this point. The Jamming Fanzine Podcast, however, is a standalone show. It's an opportunity to have conversations with writers, photographers, musicians, label and record store types, and other people who were around the culture of those times. Most episodes will feature myself as former publisher and editor of Jamming in a Zoom conversation with two or more hopefully like-minded people that may or may not have met each other before, and will tackle a specific aspect of the culture. As you'll know if you listen to the first two episodes, From Classroom to Clubs and Mods and Sods. This time out, though, the conversation is one-on-one and in-person. As you'll have heard from the introduction, Jolly McPhee and I go back several decades to when I was just 14 years old. Jolly, often known just by that single name, was proprietor of Better Badges, the seminal printer of pretty much all the button badges you would have seen on lapels and satchels and shirts and ties back in the late 70s and early 80s, not just across the UK, but probably in the States as well. Jolly estimates that over his seven years of running Better Badges, he printed some 40 million of these pins, as they are called in the States, in total. That initial meeting between Jolly and myself was one of those serendipitous occasions that had lasting benefits for the both of us. By an additional coincidence, after each of our businesses imploded in the 1980s, and in the interview that follows, Jolly extrapolates perfectly the kind of problems we both faced as creative entrepreneurs turned (laughs) hapless businessmen, I should probably say, we both ended up in New York City, where we frequently ran into each other all the way through the 1990s. I moved upstate in the early 21st century, and fast forward to September 2021, Jolly was vacationing in the Catskill Mountains near where I do live, and so I hand-delivered his best of jamming, and we sat down, perused through it, along with some original copies of the six issues that he printed at Better Badges, and had ourselves a conversation that pretty much traced Jolly's entire life. 
It has been edited for length and additionally filtered to minimise the sound of the passing stream. If you can hear any of our cut and pastes, well hey, that's fanzines for you. As it happens, I'm recording this intro from a different set of mountains, the Andes in Colombia, yes, the country, where I'm on a writing retreat and where I'm rather appalled to have heard myself on the intro generically reference America at the start of our talk when I should have specifically said the USA. They take that kind of thing seriously in Latin America as well they should. The Robin you will hear mentioned is Robin Richards, who was intrinsically involved in the design of jamming. Neil at Smash Hits should probably be Nick Logan, who went on to found The Face. Sherwood is Adrian Sherwood, an important dub industrial music producer. Keith would be Keith Levine of Public Image Limited and more, and you should be able to fill in any other gaps yourself. We pick up the conversation with Jolly, an inveterate hippie active in the 1970s free festival scene. Having just printed his first badges at one such festival in Devon, right at the point of a new subculture, that of punk rock, comes along and intersects with his hippie ideals. I'll pop back at the end to round things up and tell you how to find Jolly online and what we have coming down the pike. Enjoy Images Virus with Better Badges, Jolly McFeed. you want to buy a copy of jamming so you are you are hitting on something straight away that i i think is really important to the the whole punk post-punk the fanzine culture you know, the, the 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 notion of a sort of year zero doesn't hold water that essentially there were a lot of people involved in the creativity of punk who had been hippies or were still hippies i used and to say it, i used to culture. say at the time that you know we got what we wished for in some, in some you know we had the vision kind of thing you know I mean I was a roadie for the Pink Fairies you know since 1970 and and you know I'm part of the underground and then what happened was that the uh was that things got bad in like 73 74 you had the oil embargo you had like I was just watching this Lucan movie last night with the garbage piling up outside on the street the lights going out because of the miners strike things were grim and what happened was that the music scene at that time died. All the independent record stores, practically, to a, to a man, died. And the only place you could buy music was in Woolworths or... Smiths. Smiths, yeah. But in Woolworths particularly. And so the style of the music actually changed to be a Woolworths style of music. Cheap and gaudy, you know. And this was like glam rock was personally suited to like a kind of Woolworths reality. And, I mean, while glam was very much influential on the young punk, what I would say is that their older brothers... We're into Hawkwind and the Pink Fairies. And so they inherited, they kind of inherited that from their older brothers. And by the time 76 rolled around, they were kind of graduating from bubblegum to like more serious stuff. There isn't, there isn't a difference between punk and hippie in England. I mean, and it's kind of reunited at crusty punks in the 80s. You know, and meanwhile, English hippie had diverged into two kind of things. And one was, had always been this kind of, one lot that there was the Aquarians, you know, live healthy, and this lot, and the other lot were the cocaine takers, the White Panthers, the rock and roll and fucking in the streets, you know, kind of exemplified by Mick Farron and his whole philosophy. And and so all this bad scene happened. There was nothing going on, I and mean, we all went off to listen to, like, Weather Report and stuff at that time, you know. The scene was dead, and eventually it sort of revived from nothing into pub rock because the only place people could play was in the back rooms of the pubs by about 75. And, sure. You know... 
people like me have been listening to music since I was eight years old anyway. It wasn't like I didn't know about hippie culture. But the more I've had the chance to reflect, I've realized that the young punks needed people who had a little bit of experience in trying to run a business. In IT and Friends and so on, you know, there was a thriving underground press and McFerrin adopting uh, John Sinclair, you know, language of, you know, free free music and, and all this kind of thing. Fuck the system. You know, there was this kind of thing that we'd set, we'd had this idea kind of then. What happened was that by about 73, as I said, things got bad. Meanwhile, this friend of ours, H, opened Dingwalls and gave everybody a job. And that was when the Pink Fairies stopped because they all got workers, bartenders and cooks and DJs at Dingwalls, you know. And all the underground press died in that time. But meanwhile, the old underground press people got jobs with the mainstream music press. I, mean, so I, just, you were, I want to say, though, you were part of that underground press as well with IT, correct? At that time, yeah, a sort of revived one. I was, I was the music editor of IT in 77. There was a revolution in technology at that time. The Japanese had sold everybody twin cassette decks. Xerox, it was the thing, instant print started. Xerox got so cheap, got cheaper. And so never before in human history had the general public been able to reproduce things, especially audio. It was letterpress or nothing. You know, a LIFO plate cost £100, mm-hmm. you know, in those days. That was, that was what enabled the whole thing. I mean, it would have happened because of that technology, because DIY technology enabled peer-to-peer. It probably began with, with the kind of thing where a friend would just record an album for you at school because you didn't have the money. It was basically John Peel and, and twin cassette decks. Yeah. And smart bands understood this and like Susan the Banshees that didn't sign the deal and held off and meanwhile you know every school playground there was in the country there were people swapping Banshee, Bans- Banshees Peel sessions yeah, Banshees yeah Peel absolutely because I was at school and and it was I mean that stuff was seminal unsigned love and, bands. The, love and the void yeah yeah and th- those versions I mean so many Peel sessions were better in the Peel sessions yeah. than on the, the sli- record the but Slits the, one did well too yeah the Slits one were, were, were amazing but, but particularly bands that took a while to get signed those sessions were were utterly you know meanwhile Nils is out there painting sign the banshees on sort of <laughs> you know bridges and roads you know right so you got you got the badges um going as a sort of you know, and then see, it's so then you started off that, with your Hendrix and your yeah, your and then so I did Stonehenge, um, and then I came to London, and uh, I had a thing where I'd uh, I had I'd got this job somehow painting uh, Eric Idle's kitchen, and I'd recruited subcontracted it to my friend Mike Williams, he was in there doing it, and so I went to London and we were, I was at so that's in St John's Wood. And, uh, and, and, so, uh, and so I'm there, and Paddy Smith had just played and the Roundhouse, and I saw that was a big deal, and then and I'd missed that. But, and then I went to uh, uh, playing with the, with the fairies, was Martin Stone, who was from Chili Willie, who was my friend, and so I saw he was playing with the 101ers. So I went to, to see... Uh, to see Martin play with the 101 is at the Fulham Broadway place. I went in the dressing room, and in the dressing room, drummer, who I kind of knew because he lived next door to me in Walton Road, he, uh, he announced to the band that he was jacking it in to go off and do this other band. 
you know, and, uh, you know, basically punk rock kind of thing. And I, and I remember standing outside after the show with him at the bus stop outside this place and saying, yeah, I, I, this is this is good stuff. I'm going to do this too. And that was when I kind of made the decision to jump onto punk. Was right. standing next, standing outside the Fulham. Was it the Fulham Greyhound or uh, the Greyhound was the one that was up the block. Right, Fulham okay. Broadway was the Fulham. I forget what it was. And uh, and so the, the the Ramones were playing the Roundhouse July Fourth. I designed a Ramones badge. And uh, with Johnny Ramone, who's the most iconic Ramone. And uh, and I went down there, and I managed to talk my way in. Amazingly, um, you know, John Curd, who, of course, I mean, I didn't know him, but he had connections, you know. And he said, he looked at it and said, all right, then. And he, there was a stand between the toilets at the Roundhouse, Des K, who sold Tantra badges, you know, all the Tantra designs. He sold Rizzlers, he sold, you know, the sort of hippie store, and he said you can set up at the edge of that, and there is a photograph of somewhere of that, and uh, and I sold Ramones badges, and, and that was a, from them, as you say, I I never looked back. Right. Um, so you ended up running better badges in Notting Hill, and I can really not remember you in Notting Hill, but that is where I came to see you, and I had done four issues at school. And then I'd done two issues with two different printers and I was up against a brick wall trying to figure out how to keep this fanzine going because for all that you're saying peer-to-peer etc the cost of printing was such that to print less than a thousand copies was crazy prohibitive but I I came to you for an ad I came to you just because I was like anybody who could just give me 20 quid for a full page ad so I'll, I'll, I'll say this the key thing to making badges and at the time that I got was process camera, PMT camera. It's a huge ass camera, yeah. lights at the side, in which you could enlarge and reduce something. It's not, you know, it's not understood now that at that time you could not make stuff larger or smaller. You know, even Xeroxes that made stuff were larger and smaller were just coming in, coming in, didn't come into a year or two later. And so, I, first the printer that I went to, Letterstream, let me use theirs. Then I got one on the Never Never. And, and this also served as a magnet for, you know, everybody would come to me to do their single covers and all this to do all their artwork. And uh, badges took off in a big way. And um, just going back to the point that I made earlier, driven by shows, that we did the Roundhouse show and then when things moved to Electric Ballroom, it was very much driven by that. We, you know, we very didn't deal with record companies whatsoever until the rough trades and mutes of the factories of this world. Um, it was just a question of what are the fans, what do they want to buy this week? What, what can we do that's, that's good? You know what I mean? That looks good. And some of it was just sheet fillers. And uh, anyway, everything went good. And then in 17... One day I'm sitting on the doorstep. I'm just going to go a bit long here. But one day I'm sitting on the doorstep of Portobello Road and the skinhead comes up and talks to me and from Labrick Grove Skins and uh, and he says yeah you know we could do some of that and then he hand drew me a Labrick Grove Skins badge LGS and another one that was skinheads reggae with skinheads white on black and put 
reggae white, black on white. And, uh, and that was the first two-tone badge. And probably in late 78. By 79, two-tone had taken over. So two-tone was very easy to reproduce. And so suddenly we found ourselves being bootlegged. You know, my badge, we weren't the only game in town. Badges were appearing on every street corner. You know, it was Carnaby Street, whatever, whatever. And so the whole thing was being devalued as, an, as a sort of hip underground medium that I, my slogan image is virus, disease is cure, and so on was going out the window. So that was the, one of the real reasons why I decided to get into fanzines. We'd already, always sold fanzines on the badge store. I wanted to associate badges closer to fanzines in order that they'd be seen as, to differentiate them from the junk. Right. You know, at the same time, a salesman from Romeo Vickers showed up and said, yeah, we do this tabletop LIFO machine. And I said, okay, fine. And rented the basement room to like put it in. And then I set about teaching myself that I needed to learn to print. And that is about the point when you walked in. But I think that before you actually offered to print the fanzine, you said, I have this camera yeah. that I can actually do the artwork for you because the artwork on issue six was so terrible because this company had, where we tried to yeah. write things out, they yeah. half-toned entire yeah. pages. Yeah. And, and you probably took a look and said, well, this is awful. I can actually do this better. And I said, well, that's a start. Yeah. And then very, very quickly, because I was for at least a week or two still trying to find printers. And I think you said, you know what? Guinea pig. My recollection is that you said, I've got this new LIFO press. Yeah. I yeah, need no, to I'm test saying it that out. You happened to walk in the same day as probably almost the, to the day when this this guy from Ronio Vickers walked in, and uh, so the idea was you were going to be able to to, to I, I guess change either the printing on your badges or up the printing on your badges or print more well, paper, save money, yeah, right, and also become more agile, right. And you made me this great offer because I, I look back on it and I, now to some extent everybody creates their own luck. I was I had the audacity or the guts or whatever to come into your office and say, would you take that out? And so I get the credit for that. But you get the credit for the fact that I was coming up against a brick wall and I'm not really sure what would have happened with jamming. I had the enthusiasm, but you couldn't get anywhere with printers. What are they going to do? You know, you go in and speak to them and they say, well, it's going to cost you this much. You're a kid off the street. There was very, very little, and the, the Xeroxing was not cheap either. Um, uh, well, people did it on their, you know, in their mum's office and things Exactly, like that. I didn't have access to that. So yeah. I was now... I was now being, being not into things illegal for obvious reasons. Yeah, I just didn't have access, So and, and it was beyond being a school fanzine, so I was really, really stuck. And so when you said, you know, guinea pig, I'll just charge you cost, and we'll try and do this together. You know, what came out, which I, was that Jamming 7, was actually not a great print job but no, it saved I think the if you look, if you look at it probably you can see the pages the pages that i started printing versus the the ones at the end you know was i got progressively better you know on page the first page i'd never printed i would have done the cover afterwards but on the first page i'd never printed anything in my life but as i know in the, in this best of jamming book i think we probably threw away as many pages as we printed. I yeah, mean, I just remember yeah, you'd yeah. be like, I've, I can do it better than this. I can do it better. And what was meant to be a weekend, I think you said, you know, come up and just come up yeah, on Saturday and Sunday and we'll, we'll print this off. Story of, story of my life. <laughs> and about two weeks later, we're like, hey, we actually have a thousand copies of a fanzine. Yeah, I mean, that's the same one just stapled. Back. Well, this is the same 
That's the same issue. Same issue. But, but then, then what did definitely happen is he said, you know what, I'm, I print badges in more than one color. So if you don't mind just using whatever color I've got available, yeah. we can have some fun. Jamming 8 is when it really came together, the new group special. So in between this and that is when I'd actually bought printing presses. Mm -hmm. And I brought these from a store that was going out of business in Covent Garden. And I got the guy who sold them to me and his brother came to work for me as printers. Mike, who was a born-again Christian, whose sole thing was promoting his wife as a born-again Christian singer. And Pete, his brother, who was uh, a Millwall fan, who continued to work for Better Badges for many years. So you made a very conscious decision, you were telling me. It wasn't just like, oh, I've got this particular machine to do badges, I can print fountains. It sounds like you were more saying... There's a fanzine culture. If I print badges, why can't I print fanzines? Let's 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 um, really try I and worked it out. I mean, I'll track this also back to the day when I threw out royalties on badges, which was you know um, via Rob Gretton and Factory, when you know Gretton persuaded me to to forget about trying to pay royalty on badges, and uh, and he said, and this was because they couldn't make up their minds whether to forgive badges or the Joy Division badges, factory numbers, make them, you know, because everything at factory had a number. So they said, fanzines is what's coming back at us. You know, it's, and badges is what's coming back at us as well. It's not what we're putting out, it's what's coming back at us. And the way we do projects is, you know, is we use, we use projects to fund other projects. And so you'd be better off, we, we don't need the money, we'd rather you give the money to the next band coming in the door, you know, and do a deal, just set up, do a setup where, and I said, yeah, that makes sense to me too. So I threw out trying to like account royalties and just said, any band that comes in the door with their badge, we give them 200 free badges, we've got the simple rate structure, you know, 5p to make, 10p to the store, 20p to the public. And so, with, so I worked out that I would do the same thing with fanzines. You know, and it would, but basically it was 2p a sheet, double-sided, and was the cost of making. So, and, uh, and then, so this meant that a 10-sheet fanzine like yours, I think, cost 20. Well, so I don't know how we managed the, the finances mm -hmm. of it, because you've got... Right, well, after that issue 7, which was, you know, passable, when we did this one, you said, well, I'll still do it for... You know, I still need you as a guinea pig, because, you know, we didn't pull it off last time. But so that's... that's so whether Jamming 8 was consciously printed at cost because I was already bringing you fanzines, or whether you said, you know, the last one didn't really come out the way I wanted, we'll do this one at cost... And then can you know, and then just point people my way. I remember that when I went around with that one, it was the first one that sold out. It was the first one that just felt totally right. Um, it tied in with a very, very vibrant summer of 1979, and all of a sudden, every you know anybody who was running a fancy said, "How the hell did you get that printed?" But my memory of spending that 1979 with you is a lot of time spent either at Rough Trade or at 5th Column, which was up in Kilburn, or inside 286 Portobello Road, yeah. having a good time. We would work well together on this. We would pull some late nights. I'd, I'd eventually say, I've got to get the last tube home, or I've got to get a I tube. I remember your mother coming bus. to the door. That's what I remember. And my mum would come and pick up the finished fanzines, because yeah. somehow they get, had to get all the way back to um, to what would have actually, at that point, still been around the Gypsy Hill area, West Dulwich. 
I mean, what else? What else can you tell 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 people who are listening about two eighty six better badges? I remember your cat, Jimmy. Yep. Who, Jim, who, Jimmy, I mean, Jimmy used to crap. We, we the key, one of the key things of the badge business was buckets. We had these yellow buckets that we brought from the hardware store, in which we had badges, and, um, and the, Jimmy the cat used to crap in these in these buckets of badges. So you never knew when you put your hand in doing these things what you were going to hit, but. Uh, I started Better Badges basically in a garage in St. Stephen's Mews. And then as I got bigger, I went to 286, talked them into renting me the top floor, and I kept the garage for production. Then I moved the stock into the basement and moved production in, and we got the room, we got the move the camera and everything in the middle floor. That's where I remember. It was in the old bathroom. The camera was in the old bathroom. And then we got the, and then we got the front room for the designs. We had, basically we had three floors. You know, that's well, what I remember. You, where did we you had two lived and a half floors. Yeah, did you live on the top floor? Crashed in one room on the top floor for a right. bit. I used to work all night, and then I would go to the Porchester Turkish bars and sleep off during the day while the staff came in and worked. And my routine would probably be I'd come to see you after school. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, I did have school, and I yeah. would come in in the afternoons, and we'd work on. Uh, not so much the layout, but doing you know, the camera work. And then, you know, I would have to leave you to catch tubes and produced, buses home. You know, I calculated, as I left in 82, I calculated I'd made 40 million badges. 40 million badges? Yeah, in those in those four years. And I didn't make a whole lot in the first year. So really... Well, six years. You said 76, 82? 76, 82, yeah, six yeah, years. But it was really... Yeah, it was really... Wow. During, during that kind of time, we used to run 50,000 a week on the badges you know it was it was short-lived but it was quite intense well you know you cannot underestimate the importance the badges were you know you 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 you, you often mention the image as virus but i mean for for kids it was just as simple as the badges the message um it's something that i used to point out to fancying people and you know it's very aware of that badges you could print you know up to 48 on a sheet one sheet of paper one-sided you know, and sell it for 20p. A fanzine, you had to print 20 sheets, you know, 10 sheets, double-sided, and it sold for the same money. So it makes a statement about information. And even but, now... Because a, people can make a statement with it? Is that, is that your answer? Because, because people are, are willing to pay 25p to make a visual I think it's statement the fact on that their lapel? Yeah, and the fact that it's, an, it's a token, it's an encapsulation, and it's a token. And... Uh, and I very much, in my badge designs, used to try and make things that were very much of a piece. Do you know what I mean? But people, people come to badges, and even I, when I came to badges, they start thinking at it and they look, okay, before we came into badges, you couldn't do graphics. You know, people just did letterpress and slogans. So they think about slogans. You can make badges. You can go and make badges of what's the top ten, you know, Madonna or whatever. You know what I mean? And nobody wants to buy them. But if you make badges of the band down the street, the you know the whatever, then people will buy them. Right. You know, it's the leverage. You know. And there are there are other aspects to it because a lot of people would take badges for promo. So I mean, record companies might come to you and just pay you to print badges. Yeah. And you, they, I mean, you, there would be promo. I mean, this was part of the premise of Better Badges was that, you know, and what started me on the route to Better Badges was that I had a Jimi Hendrix, I'm experienced badge that was this big. The boss from the Pink Fairies gave me, and someone stole it, and I realised that there was no way to replace it. And at the same time, there's something that Crass later expressed as "you pay," but you, the punter, 
pay for the badge that the record label gives to someone else. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea of better badges was that you paid for the badge and you got the badge. And then you, you know, and you promoted what you wanted to promote. You weren't at the mercy of what was coming down at you. It was people, you know, setting the agenda. And that's partly because the badges look so cool. I mean, you yeah, know, they, they, they were collector's items in their own way. Do you have this, this particular clash this, badge? Or I think, you know, you, you, you've hit on something. Why, why were you able to sell a single badge that you could print 48 on one sheet for the same price as, uh, as a fanzine? I think fanzines were unfortunately had to compete with the enemy in sounds, etc., that were printing quarter of a million a week and selling for 25p. So the moment that you charge more than a music paper, you had to be so much better than that music paper. So for me, I was always trying to come in at much the same cost as a music paper, like, here's your alternative. But if you started charging double what the music paper cost, people would say, well, I'd sooner just buy sounds and enemy. You were always up against a little bit of that. Well... But by the same token, it was underground. And by being underground, that's what gave it the value. Yeah. As you grew bigger... Oh, yeah. The second half of the book, particularly the last third of this, of this book, you can see us wrestling with it continually. Continually. I mean, we're trying. I'm, I'm proud of most of it. But eventually it becomes a magazine. You yeah. just feel there's this point... So you're sitting next to Zigzag on the newsstand. Uh, that Zigzag, so at least we're sitting next to, I mean, to some degree, we, we are just a monthly magazine. You know, we're not the underground. Yeah. We're cool. We're quite a good magazine. But um, where's the urgency talk, in it? Talk about the end of the end of jamming then. You know, what? how did it end? Oh, it ended badly. It ended like a really good band breakup, meaning, meaning like a bad band breakup. I... I mean, it's all there, and I, I wrote a full page on the on the issue 36 about it. Um, I'd handed over the reins to, to, to partly because I was sort of I'd been getting involved in some other things, and I sort of it made there was this idea of me sort of moving upstairs, becoming like that sort of you know more like a publisher, and we could do different ventures. Right. And um, underneath, and and with the people that that had made the journey with me who I then put it, you know, who then stepped in as, as, as editors, I just felt like this was no longer, we suddenly lacked all the vibrancy, we lacked everything. The ethos. We, yeah, the ethos was gone. But there was also a sort of unfortunate degree of that competition that can happen. And um, I found that underneath me, people were, that there were feuds, I guess. There was like, look, if you're not, if you're not editor anymore, get out of the way, which is understandable. But then I was also running into people who go, yeah, jamming's kind of just like lost it. Yeah, it's lost its mojo, which is sort of a deliberate pun on, on but another the scene changed as well, right? Yeah, so we're talking now, you're at the end of 1985. We've gone through the minor strike. Yeah. We've gone through See, politicization. We've you, done you, all of you that. You went a lot longer than me. You see, yeah. I, you know, yeah. What happened to me was, was, was that, you know, I had a Vic 20 or whatever and, uh, you know, a, a Spectrum. I got, you know, in 1980, I had a ZX Spectrum. And I looked at this, and you could get a modem for it. And I figured out, hey, if we can do this online, we won't need these piles of, of magazines to pass around notes at the back of class. And so I, I could see that it would be online. And I, you know, and meanwhile, I was kind of burnt out. And the scene changed under me. It went from basically punk rock to, to new romantic and... You know. There was a massive scene change. I mean, jamming lasted a long time and was valid for a long time. How yeah. long are you yeah. going to be urgent? How yeah. long is this going to matter? Yeah. We were featuring the same bands. The final issue had us featuring New Order, Madness, 
prefab sprout, all bands that have appeared in jamming before. You know, we're just going around in circles, we're treading water, all those kind of cliches. I mean, with me, I, you know, when I got to the flat, I had a guy who was going to come in as a backer and who was being the guy being the publisher of IT. And, and he had, he was, you know, he'd inherited money, had money. And he had his accountants go through all my books. And this is in, like, probably in 79 or 80. And, uh, and they went through it and said, yeah, you know, this looks like a good, this looks like a healthy business. But then, and meanwhile, I was beginning to get into cash flow problems. And meanwhile, he decided to, like, put his money into, like, doing a theatre workshop in Bristol instead and pulled out. And, and I, was, I was in too deep to get out. But, uh, I mean, one just didn't think on, I mean, one, and that's the point is you never really thought about it entrepreneurially. You started doing it creatively and then you end up being an administrator. Yeah. Right? That's every entrepreneur's story. Yeah. You, know, you start out with the creative side and you end up sitting there filling out the books. Yeah. You know, and, and, and trying to make sure people are getting paid or making sure, you know, like, like the, the, the supply is going. So, um, uh, the accountant said, you know, you can either go bankrupt or you can leave the country. And there was a crazy period when I was kind of like, okay, it's through. And then, but money's still coming in. Do you know what I mean? But, but you know that it's going to be meaningless. So you're just going to spend all the money because, because you're going to be bankrupt, whatever. So you might, might as well spend it while you've got it. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of crazy little period there before I, before I actually got out. Right. The mainstream culture had caught up. You know, when, when you were doing jamming in the early days, you know, if you look at the music press, the music press was straight text, you mm -hmm. know, photo, black and white photographs that they're given, you know, the image, the straight text, you know, and formal and then fanzines come in and slap it all together and it's underground and whatever and so you know the first person to really figure this out was um was neil i guess with smash hits you know which was okay we just print the lyrics and throw in and some graphics or you know whatever and i advertised in there and it worked you know very well for me and uh, but by the time the face and things like this had come up they had adopted fanzine style and culture so you no longer had to go to this for that this is very true and you know that's actually a point that's not been made to me before and i appreciate you making that point but because it it seems crystal clear but i've actually never crystallized it so i think that's a really really valid point the inkies were were known as inkies for that reason you know they were just type like you said it was just black ink and then all of a sudden you're competing with things like the face that are actually looking pretty stylish and id to, to its credit yeah was doing that but um, I, I wanted to read you this part that I saw from um, the one thing to read you it's actually from when I did a massive fanzine roundup this would be this would have been printed January 81 and it's literally the half pages about better badges and fanzines. You having your rant about me homogenizing well, fanzines. Well no actually I'm actually being very very supportive I'm, I've reread it and I'm actually quite supportive if anything I'm just accusing the fanzines of a lack of originality I'm saying like so what there's a supportive printer is that, that, like, given that there are no other supportive printers, is that a bad thing? Yeah, I'm going, I'm going through the, you know, the, the issues, uh, you know, that, that people are saying. Too easy going about things? Well, yeah, you know, they are. But is that, hey... You said people, they didn't have the hurdle. To, yeah. You know, they didn't have to struggle the way that you struggled. Right. But here's what I actually said. So, so I, say, I say here, what happens when you take a fanzine in to better badges to be printed? Basically, you leave it there 
with notes of what needs to be done to the artwork, then after a week, phone up every day when Michael Jolly will tell you that it's almost ready until it actually is. This can take any amount of time whatsoever. I actually think that sums it up quite nicely. I mean, you guys were great. Yeah. You were at the other end of the phone. You did your very, very best. And sometimes you got it done in a week and sometimes it took six weeks. And To, yeah, this, to this day with my live streaming, with my webcasting and edit video editing, it's, it's, it's exactly the same story. Yeah. The intentions the intentions were, were, were very true. I wanted to show my, you... The, you know, my, my reach always exceeds my... Uh, your, or your vision exceeds your capabilities no, or something. Yeah, yeah. 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 I wanted to show you the last issue because this will bring back, hopefully, you, you mentioned to me actually as I was putting this together. So we've gone through, um, yeah, there, there's more and more color. Robin's doing the covers, a bit more artwork. But the last one that you did, which was summer of 81, we got to go gatefold. And um, and so this would be printed on the, on the large rotor print, on the A3 printer. Right which we'd learned to do from from doing ID. Right, so I'm actually getting the benefit of ID's experience here, I, yeah, of what you've done with ID, but it made, it was another really important step up for jamming. It's still the same, obviously done at better badges, still my layout combined with uh, Robin's layout, you can feel all Same typewriter, but a new ribbon. Sorry? Same typewriter, but a new ribbon. You've noticed, yeah, I think I finally got around to replacing my mum's old ribbon. But the gatefold made made a nice difference. Um, somewhere around this period, I also sent Paul Weller your way to print a fanzine. And so, part of the exhibit at NYU of my badges is the actual letter from Paul Weller in original artwork for that. So somehow that has survived. Is that exhibition on right now? Or? No, it was. It went on for like two weeks, three years ago. But once the book is published. And it'll probably be in the book. Once the book is published, there'll be more exhibits. Right. So, so there was a there was a box of stuff that I left with a girlfriend that somehow survived, which has gone to Kevin, which has you know. Right. This is Kevin who's putting the book together. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So I sent weather your way. I mean, basically, he would have said, "This guy is printing your fanzines. Yeah. You know, can I? I, I want to do a fanzine." Um, yeah. And at that point, we were already dealing with John and Anne, I think, on the badges. Right, right. But yeah, so you printed Paul Weller's fanzine at the yeah. time. Yeah. And you were doing literally dozens of fanzines. I, I did. I did booklets for uh, for Young Marble Giants. I did a booklet for the Raincoats. Hmm. I was printed, you know, Rock Trades first catalog, you know, of their stuff. Um, we did the flyers for Final Solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see some of those, like, you know, the Joy Division flyer, you know, going for ridiculous amounts. Of Are those the Sunday night concerts? They, the, they, or is that John Kerr? I'm thinking of Sunday nights at the Lyceum. No, the, they, did, they used to do Yulu and, and so on. They did all, you know, Cabaret Voltaire and okay. those kind of... So, yeah, they did us... They were promoters of kind of post-punk. And we did them all with the colour wash on them. So they're kind of, you know, they're kind of unique. And ultimately, um, I mean, you moved, you moved to the States and I moved a few years later and sure enough, I found you showing up at gigs with your badges. Or yeah, pins no, I, as I, we know, call I, them here. I went to California and with the idea of, you know, online. 
And I got there, and Zed Records in Long Beach paid my ticket. I'd shipped them a box full of badge prints, and so they paid for me to go out and put me up when I got there. And what I found was, you know, with my Vic 20 and 300 board modem, was that the people who were online in California were a bunch of hippies. And, and what's more, the main thing was a thing called The Well up in, in San Francisco. And these people had a slogan, which was, you own your own words. And the whole idea of images virus and like, you know, they were the antithesis. And so they just didn't make sense at all. In fact, Mike uh, Zampelli, who was the son of the, who ran the record store, Zez, ended up running the biggest BBS in Southern California. He picked it up and so on. And, and meanwhile, I went to see Motorhead at... Uh, Billy Barty's Roller Disco next to Disney Disneyland and uh, the promoter there was uh, I saw the promoter and he had a big bag of weed and he said yeah and we've got crass, crass is coming and I went up to him and I said look I'll give you John Loder's phone number off the top of my head crass is not coming to Southern California and you know give me some of that weed and I'll tell you and for that I became the book of the Golden Voice okay All and right. I said to him you don't have to bring these bands from California, I mean, from New through New York, you can just bring them in here. And, uh, and so, and we did a, we had, that was in the summer of 83, and I left in early 85. And so we did a, we did a, you know, that was what put Golden Voice on the map, was that one and a half year. Gary was, he was a weed dealer, and, uh, and he loved punk rock with a passion. And we did these incredible shows, you know, like CBGB's, but like 4,000 people. And we also brought in Batcave and, and, and all this kind of stuff. So, um, so then when did you move to New York City? So I did that. And then we, we came to New York to, to the New Music Seminar. And I hooked up with uh, Sherwood was there. And he was just recruiting Tackhead to be to, and, uh, and Levine. And I talked to Levine. Keith Levine? Yeah, Keith Levine. And I said to him, you know, and I DJ'd the pill shows, the original pill shows at the Rainbow. I said to him, you know, what I liked, you know, was doing sound system. And I was doing incredible sound system at these big Olympic shows in California. I was playing dub reggae and rocking it out between the circle jerks and black flag. And so I said, you know, we should do sound system, could do sound system you know, a band that has no band. In, in London, one of the things that Better Badges did was run the dub club. Yeah, we you also know? were intrinsically involved in DBC, Dread Broadcasting oh, yeah, Corporation, yeah. right? Yeah, right. I mean, that's another story. Yeah. We ran, so Kurt started doing the shows at the Parandon. So then we hired, started hiring the Talbot Tabernacle, strewing, strewing this heat's equipment around the room, and then, and then, you know, basically playing cassettes. And then we'd invite people, so it would be the Slits versus the Flying Lizards or Rough Trade versus whatever, you know, and having sort of like little sound system clashes, you know, and then messing with them, you know, where we put analog echo on this and that and speaker over there and so on. So we'd done, I'd done this kind of sound system thing there in London, the dub club. And so I went to Levine and Levine liked this. And so I came back to New York. I started coming back to New York to hang out with him to plan this out. And, uh, and, and meanwhile, he got interested in where I, what I was doing. And then he started, and so we actually ended up swapping over. As I came to New York, 
he ended up back in, he went to California and started hanging out with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and became a skateboarding kid. And so this never happened. Um, the other thing was, was that what I realized promoting in California was that um, the key to America was television. And Steve-O from Some Bizarre had got a TV show on USA Network. And so I was like, how the hell did Steve-O get a t national TV show in, in America? I had no place to live in New York. And so what I did was what I always do, is go and live in the Turkish bath. And the Turkish bath had this crazy situation where the owner had died, the son had taken over, the son was completely feckless, and lunatics were running the asylum. So I was able to live, live there basically in return for, like, washing the towels. And, uh, and about the second or third day, the guy I met was Stuart Shapiro, who was the producer of Night Flight, who was the people who put out Steve-O's show. And he said to me, go and talk to Fran Duffy. And I went and talked to Fran Duffy, and Fran Duffy, and eventually ended up moving into Fran Duffy's. Um, and once I got in there, I had my graduated with Commodore 64. I set that up and hooked that up with John Loder in England, you know, and Loder and I had had a conversation in California too about this, and he said, I'm going to put a TV studio into Southern Studios. Set up, and so we were, t we were talking, and then from that we set up a thing called Snub TV. Yeah, I remember Snub, I remember it well. Snub TV, yeah. which people in England will deny ever had an American existence before it had an English existence. Yeah, now I know it did, for sure. And, yeah. and so we set up Snub TV, and I promoted Snub TV online using MCI Mail and Western Union Easy Link. And the thing was that you could send via MCI Mail to Western Union Easy Link, and Western Union Easy Link, you could access all the telex machines. So every, and the whole music business of this stuff ran on these importers like Dutch East and whoever, whoever. Yeah. So I would run the whole lineup of the, of the show before it went out you know, a week before it went out. So it chunta, 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 chunta came out of their telex machines and, uh, and did this really, you know, and we had good ratings and did really well with that. And they always had the records. They knew what was going to be on Snub. They knew to tape it, you know, all the record stores and so on. So that was actually a pretty successful campaign. And yeah. And again, then, again, financed by some drug guys that Fran had tapped with some money. Right. But produced on two grand a show. Um, when I first got here, I suddenly got sick. And I had, like, you know, chronic fatigue disease. I could not stand up. I went to an exploited show at CBGB. And there, the exploited show was Dodgy Brian. And Dodgy Brian was a better badges customer who distributed to all the stores, all the virgin stores in Scotland. And he was there, merging exploited. And he said, I'm setting up a printing t-shirt printing thing in New York, you know, come on in. So I went to this t-shirt printing. He had a t-shirt printing set on 205 West 14th, you know, 14th and 7th Avenue. Yeah. Sheridan Square with that t-shirt thing on the corner. Right. So anyway, I went in there, fell on the ground and couldn't stand up. Literally could not stand up. And, uh, you know, who knows, it's you know, what caused it? So there were Japanese guys in the front room, also printing T-shirts. We sold T-shirts on the Hard Rock Cafe T-shirts on the street. The Japanese guy took me back in, took me in, and raised me back to health over like nine months or something. It took me to get back into shape. 
I, and so I helped them sell t-shirts on the street. And then there was a girl here who'd been Nancy Breslow, who'd been my agent here, and she had a stock of badges, so I got those badges. And I was outside Second Coming on St. Mark's, you know. Mm. In England, I went from that roundhouse stand to like 40 million badges, 50 grand in debt. I said, I'm never going to do that again. So it was never, the, you know, much more than me. I had yeah. occasional helpers. So I just did. Yeah, I think you kind of learn, you learn from, the, from those things. You know, and you know I was better off at the, if I'd be better off if I just kept doing the roundhouse stand and never done all the rest yeah. of it. You know, though I learned my own limitations. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear that because I ended up with debts from jamming as well. Um, as as uh, maybe a good place, funny enough, this is this is still going to be 30 years ago, but it's a good place to sort of take it on on how your spirit was always your your spirit. You know, I was running at club night at the limelight in the 90s, and uh, lots of people would sort of... Communion. You know, communion. Lots of people would want in on the action, but you would simply show up, set up your badges, and start selling them, and no permission from anybody. I mean... I, it was irrelevant, really, that you knew me because you'd been doing that yeah. even if you didn't yeah. know me. You just walked on in to Peter Gation's line, like, set up your bad store. Yeah. You know, you had your bad well, there were a few gig. people there. There were a few other people selling odd jewelry and so on. Yeah, but most of them... I remember most there, was of them guy, for, there was this guy, Buzz. Yeah, but most of those clearly. people asked for permission first. And, and you know, your sort of anarchist spirit, yeah. you know, hippie spirit was such that you would just be like, oh, I'm setting up here. I'd be like, oh, hi, Jolly. <laughs> like, and for me, it's you know, it, it just circles back round to funny the journey that we 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 end up taking from me walking into what I I guess was the Notting Hill place back in very probably the very start of nineteen seventy nine to being here in twenty twenty one. Yeah, there, there are upstate. occasionally you know there are other people like this that I kept running into all my life. You know, Val from the electric chairs I went to school with. He was in the class below me at school. Then he shows up, you know playing with the rockets and when I was before even the garage when I was at John Manny's he was there and then he worked for me with uh, on mail order and I went to I ended up in California and I ran into him and he's working as a bike messenger right you know right California. well sometimes you know these relationships are important and like I say you know we end up doing sort of similar things maybe attracted to the idea of of restarting in New York City and and you know we've both been very much about communication of one way in shape or form so I guess you know the paths are going to keep crossing. At, at, you know, at the Ritz pin stand, I used to do a thing called the pin test where I would make badges of the most, the, the support band or whoever, you know, to like shock them and then come and to see what, what they did when they discovered that there were someone's in the basement selling their badges, right? And, you know, and so sort of nine out of ten would say, oh, those are great, can we have some? But one out of ten would say, how dare you, who, who gave you your sort of authority to make those or whatever, you know, you're ripping us off. And those people, you could say, either they were going to die immediately or they were going to become top 40. Do you know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I know 100% what you mean. They were either going all the way or, yeah, but, but they were not part of the indie spirit. Yeah. Yeah, no, I fully, fully... And it was a thing that, that I, you know, when I threw out royalties originally, you know, that the, the bands that was that the, the bands that uh, were selling well were the ones, the people who came around asking for royalties were not the people that were selling, the badges were selling. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The ones that came in and said, yeah, just do more of it. Well, I think Rob Gretton is the prime example. Yeah. He's like, but the, yeah, clash, the Clash was a good example too. 
basically. I mean, the Clash was a funny thing. I did like this really horrible badge and Bernie Rhodes hated it with a vengeance. And then so he came, he came around and did a deal where I, I could repro the police badge if I got rid of that. Right. But, but basically, I paid them some money to take their van to Europe the first time. That was a deal with Bernie. And, you know, but after that, they never asked for money. The police, you know, we did all, did all their stuff. They never asked for money. So. Well, I have to, I have to wrap this up. But I gotta, I gotta say, you know, it's, it, a, a, it's lovely just to be sitting, sitting here in such a different environment. But you know, I do particularly look back. I think, I guess it would be sort of 1979 when was just like a really good year and spending a lot of time in that dark room with you, you know, in that yeah. camera room and everything seemed to roll off the presses and jamming just took off leaps and bounds in the space of two to three issues. It went from being like, I'll never get another issue out to this is the happening fanzine. And, uh, you know, a lot of it's right place, and right Panache, time. And Panache was pretty happening. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it, it, it was happening for me. Um, and so, you know, our, our stories were, were connected that way. So some of those are on the front cover of the book. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's lovely to talk with you about it. Yeah, I'm sorry I didn't write anything. I kind of, I thought about it, but I was just, it I, never crystallized in my mind what I wanted to say. I would have, I would have done the, this was the breaking time of technology thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was, that was, that's my main input. Well, we get it, we get it on a form of digital tape instead. So Tony here again. I have to say, listening back to that interview, I learned so much there. Very often when you're in the thick of things, you, you kind of just take so much for granted. You don't have the wide angle view. You're not far enough removed to really know what's going on. And to hear Jolly go through really his entire life, but specifically what went on at Better Badges and uh, what's gone on since, uh, I learned I learned enormously, and I think Jolly was great being able to describe some of the issues that uh, we both went through in our own kind of uh, creative environments. Um, as you would well expect, Jolly remains very, very active in the online world, and you can find him at punkcast.com. You can find him active on Facebook and on various groups on Facebook, including subculture ones and better badges ones. I will supply links in the show notes. That's the thing that's sitting on your phone or on your computer laptop um, with more information about the show. Similarly, there's lots of information about the best of jamming selections and stories from the fanzine that grew up, 1977 to 86. It's not just a reprint in full color of various previous uh, issues and greatest hits. There's also fresh copies supplied by myself, by various contributors, and musicians and other people who were around. And it has a foreword by Billy Bragg. We've got several other interviews already recorded for this show. It got kind of really busy around publication of the book. The way things stand right now, I think the next episode will probably be called The Politics of Fanzines. But you never know. We'll see which one actually makes most sense as we get a little closer down the line. The show does drop every other Thursday. And I'll leave my friend Jenny, who I've known all the way back since I was, again, 14, 15. And I'll leave her to read the credits. And thank you so much for listening. This episode of the Jamming Fanzine podcast was produced by Tony Fletcher. Greg Morton provided editing assistance and designed the logo.
The Jamming Fanzine podcast theme was written, recorded and produced by Noel Fletcher. The book The Best of Jamming, Selections and Stories from the Fanzine that Grew Up, 1977-86, to is published by Omnibus Press and is available right now across Europe and then in the rest of the world from the 2nd of December 2021. For more information, please visit tonyfletcher.net or omnibuspress.com. Check the show notes for more details. And if you like what you hear, please hit subscribe, leave a review, a rating or share. We'll be back on the podcast stands in two weeks, bringing back that new optimism of the 80s, hopefully. Hopefully.